Book Two, Chapter Four, Sections Twenty One to Twenty Six of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Twenty One. And then, as if it were something that everyone in the dower house had been waiting for, came the message that Hugh had been killed. The telegram was brought up by a girl in a pinafore instead of the boy of the old dispensation, for boys now were doing the work of youths, and youths the work of the men who had gone to the war. Mr. Britling was standing at the front door. He had been surveying the late October foliage, touched by the warm light of the afternoon, when the messenger appeared. He opened the telegram, hoping as he had hoped when he opened any telegram since Hugh had gone to the front, that it would not contain the exact words he read. That it would say, wounded, that at the worst it would say, missing, that perhaps it might even tell of some pleasant surprise, a brief return to home, such as the last letter had foreshadowed. He read the final, unqualified statement, the terse regrets. He stood quite still for a moment or so, staring at the words. It was a mile and a quarter from the post-office to the dower house, and it was always his custom to give telegraph messengers who came to his house tuppence, and he wanted very much to get rid of the telegraph girl, who stood expectantly before him, holding her red bicycle. He felt now very sick and strained. He had a conviction that if he did not by an effort maintain his bearing cool and dry, he would howl aloud. He felt in his pocket for money. There were some coppers and a shilling. He pulled it all out together and stared at it. He had an absurd conviction that this ought to be a sixpenny telegram. The thing worried him. He wanted to give the brat sixpence, and he had only threepence and a shilling, and he didn't know what to do, and his brain couldn't think. It would be a shocking thing to give her a shilling, and he couldn't somehow give just coppers for so important a thing as Hugh's death. Then all this problem vanished, and he handed the child the shilling. She stared at him, inquiring, incredulous. "'Is there a reply, sir, please?' "'No,' he said. "'That's for you. All of it. This is a peculiar sort of telegram. It's news of importance.' As he said this he met her eyes, and had a sudden persuasion that she knew exactly what it was the telegram had told him, and that she was shocked at this gala-like treatment of such terrible news. He hesitated, feeling that he had to say something else, that he was socially inadequate, and then he decided that at any cost he must get his face away from her staring eyes. She made no movement to turn away. She seemed to be taking him in, recording him for repetition, greedily, with every fibre of her being. He stepped past her into the garden, and instantly forgot about her existence. 
22. He had been thinking of this possibility for the last few weeks almost continuously, and yet now that it had come to him, he felt that he had never thought about it before, that he must go off alone by himself to envisage this monstrous and terrible fact, without distraction or interruption. He saw his wife coming down the alley between the roses. He was wrenched by emotions as odd and unaccountable as the emotions of adolescence. He had exactly the same feeling now that he had had when, in his boyhood, some unpleasant admission had to be made to his parents. He felt he could not go through a scene with her yet, that he could not endure the task of telling her, of being observed. He turned abruptly to his left. He walked away, as if he had not seen her, across his lawn towards the little summer-house upon a knoll that commanded the high-road. She called to him, but he did not answer. He would not look towards her, but for a time all his senses were alert to hear whether she followed him. Safe in the summer-house he could glance back. It was all right. She was going into the house. He drew the telegram from his pocket again furtively, almost guiltily, and re-read it. He turned it over and read it again. Killed. Then his own voice, hoarse and strange to his ears, spoke his thought. My God! How unutterably silly! Why did I let him go? Why did I let him go? 23. Mrs. Britling did not learn of the blow that had struck them until after dinner that night. She was so accustomed to ignore his incomprehensible moods that she did not perceive that there was anything tragic about him until they sat at table together. He seemed heavy and sulky and disposed to avoid her, but that sort of moodiness was nothing very strange to her. She knew that things that seemed to her utterly trivial, the reading of political speeches in the Times, little comments on life made in the most casual way, mere movements, could so avert him. She had cultivated a certain disregard of such fitful darknesses. But at the dinner-table she looked up, and was stabbed to the heart to see a haggard white face and eyes of deep despair regarding her ambiguously. "'Hugh!' she said, and then with a chill intimation, "'What is it?' They looked at each other. His face softened and winced. "'My Hugh!' he whispered, and neither spoke for some seconds. "'Killed!' he said, and suddenly stood up whimpering and fumbled with his pocket. It seemed he would never find what he sought. It came at last, a crumpled telegram. He threw it down before her, and then thrust his chair back clumsily, and went hastily out of the room. She heard him sob. She had not dared to look at his face again. "'Oh!' she cried, realizing that an impossible task had been thrust upon her. "'But what can I say to him?' 
she said, with the telegram in her hand. The parlor-maid came into the room. "'Clear the dinner away,' said Mrs. Britling, standing at her place. "'Master Hugh is killed!' And then, wailing, "'Oh, what can I say? What can I say?' Twenty-four. That night Mrs. Britling made the supreme effort of her life to burst the prison of self-consciousness and inhibition in which she was confined. Never before in all her life had she so desired to be spontaneous and unrestrained. Never before had she so felt herself hampered by her timidity, her self-criticism, her deeply ingrained habit of never letting herself go. She was rent by reflected distress. It seemed to her that she would be ready to give her life and the whole world to be able to comfort her husband now. And she could conceive no gesture of comfort. She went out of the dining-room into the hall and listened. She went very softly upstairs until she came to the door of her husband's room. There she stood still. She could hear no sound from within. She put out her hand and turned the handle of the door a little way, and then she was startled by the loudness of the sound it made, and at her own boldness. She withdrew her hand, and then with a gesture of despair, with a face of white agony, she flitted along the corridor to her own room. Her mind was beaten to the ground by this catastrophe, of which to this moment she had never allowed herself to think. She had never allowed herself to think of it. The figure of her husband, like some pitiful beast, wounded and bleeding, filled her mind. She gave scarcely a thought to Hugh. "'Oh, what can I do for him?' she asked herself sitting down before her unlit bedroom fire. What can I say or do? She brooded until she shivered, and then she lit her fire. It was late that night, and after an eternity of resolutions and doubts and indecisions, that Mrs. Britling went to her husband. He was sitting close up to the fire with his chin upon his hands, waiting for her. He felt that she would come to him, and he was thinking, meanwhile, of Hugh, with a slow, unprogressive movement of the mind. He showed by a movement that he heard her enter the room, but he did not turn to look at her. He shrank a little from her approach. She came and stood beside him. She ventured to touch him very softly, and to stroke his head. "'My dear,' she said, "'my poor dear.' "'It is so dreadful for you,' she said. "'It is so dreadful for you. I know how you loved him.' He spread his hands over his face, and became very still. "'My poor dear,' she said, still stroking his hair. "'My poor dear.' And then she went on saying, poor dear, saying it presently because there was nothing more had come into her mind. 
she desired supremely to be his comfort, and in a little while she was acting comfort so poorly that she perceived her own failure. And that increased her failure, and that increased her paralyzing sense of failure. And suddenly her stroking hand ceased. Suddenly the real woman cried out from her. "'I can't reach you!' she cried aloud. "'I can't reach you. I would do anything. You, you with your heart half broken!' She turned towards the door. She moved clumsily. She was blinded by her tears. Mr. Britling uncovered his face. He stood up, astonished, and then pity and pitiful understanding came storming across his grief. He made a step and took her in his arms. "'My dear,' he said, "'don't go from me.' She turned to him weeping, and put her arms about his neck, and he too was weeping. "'My poor wife,' he said, "'my dear wife, if it were not for you, I think I could kill myself to-night. Don't cry, my dear. Don't, don't cry. You do not know how you comfort me. You do not know how you help me. He drew her to him. He put her cheek against his own. His heart was so sore and wounded that he could not endure that another human being should go wretched. He sat down in his chair, and drew her upon his knees, and said everything he could think of to console her, and reassure her, and make her feel that she was of value to him. He spoke of every pleasant aspect of their lives, of every aspect except that he never named that dear pale youth who waited now. He could wait a little longer. At last she went from him. "'Good night,' said Mr. Britling, and took her to the door. "'It was very dear of you to come and comfort me,' he said. Twenty-five. He closed the door softly behind her. The door had hardly shut upon her before he forgot her. Instantly he was alone again, utterly alone. He was alone in an empty world. Loneliness struck him like a blow. He had dependence, he had cares. He had never a soul to whom he might weep. For a time he stood beside his open window. He looked at the bed, but no sleep he knew would come that night, until the sleep of exhaustion came. He looked at the bureau at which he had so often ridden, but the writing there was a shriveled thing. This room was unendurable. He must go out. He turned to the window, and outside was a troublesome noise of night-jars and a distant roaring of stags, black trees, blacknesses, the sky clear and remote with a great company of stars. The stars seemed attentive. They stirred and yet were still. It was as if they were the eyes of watchers. He would go out to them. Very softly he went towards the passage door, 
and still more softly felt his way across the landing and down the staircase. Once or twice he paused to listen. He let himself out with elaborate precautions. Across the dark he went, and suddenly his boy was all about him, playing, climbing the cedars, twisting miraculously about the lawn on a bicycle, discoursing gravely upon his future, lying on the grass, breathing very hard, and drawing preposterous caricatures. Once again they walked side by side, up and down. It was athwart this very spot, talking gravely but rather shyly. And here they had stood a little awkwardly, before the boy went in to say good-bye to his stepmother, and go off with his father to the station. "'I will work to-morrow again,' whispered Mr. Britling. "'But to-night, to-night, to-night is yours. Can you hear me? Can you hear? Your father, who had counted on you.' Twenty-six. He went into the far corner of the hockey paddock, and there he moved about for a while, and then stood for a long time, holding the fence with both hands, and staring blankly into the darkness. At last he turned away, and went stumbling and blundering towards the rose-garden. A spray of creeper tore his face and distressed him. He thrust it aside fretfully, and it scratched his hand. He made his way to the seat in the arbor, and sat down, and whispered a little to himself, and then became very still, with his arm upon the back of the seat, and his head upon his arm. End of Book Two, Chapter Four